Today on CityCast DC, did you know there's a science to making friends? I'm here with psychologist and DC local Marissa Franco to talk about the research in her new book, Platonic, which comes out today. Because let's be real, we could all use a little bit of advice on how to build friendships in this transient city of ours. It's Tuesday, September 6, 2022. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is CityCast DC. So Dr. Franco, how has living in D.C. shaped the way that you see and understand friendship? Well, it will be a surprise to no one that we live in a very progressive city where I feel like we are um, encouraged to question some of the norms, to be sort of very critical thinking group of people. And I think that is really reflected in the ways that I see friendship, which some people could see as radical, but are actually very traditional. For example, I think, you know, There's no reason why we can't have friends as life partners. We can't raise kids with friends. We can't have houses with friends. I also question the ways that we have absolute boundaries between romantic and platonic love. I think romantic love, feeling like you're passionate about someone and you idealize someone and you could spend all your time with them. That's also a part of our friendships too. Romance is is a part of friendship and it has been throughout history, I'll also say. My script for friendship is a lot broader than probably the average person tends to be. And I think that's in part because I live in a city that offers different templates for the types of life that you can have. Ooh, I love that answer. I mean, do you think that people in D.C. are sort of more open to different understandings of what friendship and relationships can be than other than people in other places? Well, yeah. And I will say, I think like the queer community really leads us in that understanding. For example, like me questioning whether romantic love is part of friendship or not. That's really founded in the scholarship of Angela Chen, who has this really great book called Ace on the history of asexuality, where she sort of argues like romantic and sexual love are different. And if friendship isn't inherently sexual, that doesn't mean it's not inherently romantic because those are two different things, right? I'm sexually attracted to people that I'm not passionate about and I don't (laughs) idealize and I don't think are the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And I'm romantically attracted to people who I don't want to have sex with, right? And so I think also like... One thing I talk about in the book is like our friendships were really ruined by homophobia. Before 1867, it was taboo to have sex with someone of the same sex or gender, but you could still sleep in the same bed with them and write them love letters and hold their hands and carve their names into trees because none of that is sex, right? What happened is Sigmund Freud, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, two psychiatrists that wanted to argue that same-sex love is a sexual disorder. And in doing so, they created the concept of sexual orientation as we know it. And all of a sudden, it was stigmatized not just to have sex with some of the same sex, but to engage in any behaviors that could signal sexual orientation. So no more holding hands, no more sharing a bed with friends, no more cuddling with your friends, no more even just being too loving towards them, right? Because that might signify that your sexual orientation is non-heterosexual and thus Ordered according to these psychiatrists. So homophobia, I would say, has broke friendship for all of us and men in particular. Yeah, it's interesting how your work has this grounding in the queer community. I identify as queer and most of my friends do as well. And there's something about the kind of relationships I feel that we have to have with each other that just don't fit the mold where it says that your romantic partner is the end-all be-all of all of your relationships, like the nucleus. I feel that we 
by necessity, have the capacity for different kinds of pairings being really important in our lives and not just having it focus on that one person who you have a romantic pairing with. Absolutely. Yeah. There's this interesting theory called the substitution hypothesis, which argues that if we don't have connection in our life in some way, we're going to find connection in another place, right? So I think for queer folks, sometimes if you're not accepted by your family, you find the offering of deep connection in your friendships and you find the offering of a chosen family. And and that's also something I feel like w- what really pushed me to write the book was my feelings like if I didn't have romantic love, I was unlovable and I wasn't worthy and how my own friendships really made me start to question that. And I think now I still see how like, for example, being single, It's like stigmatized. It's seen like your life isn't complete. But in fact, single people have more friends. They tend to spend more time with their friends. And even though marriage makes us slightly happier, single people who socialize a lot are actually happier than the average married person. Wow. And if we don't... Yeah. (laughs) So if we don't perceive friendship as inferior, that opens us up to so many different life paths. We all need community. We all need connection. It just doesn't have to be the traditional template that's been laid out for a lot of us. Absolutely. So we know that you're a psychologist by trade. You mentioned having a script for friendship. What does the science say about the best way to make friends? So the first thing that I like to remind people of when making friends is remember research on something called the liking gap. The liking gap is based on a study where when strangers interact and were asked, hey, how much do you like one another? They tended to underestimate how liked they were, which suggests we're less likely to get rejected than we think we are, right? So going into friendship optimistic by assuming people like you is really important. Researchers told people, hey, you're going to go into this group and people are going to like you based on your personality profile. That was a complete lie, but they found that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because thinking that way made people warmer open, more friendly. Whereas when you assume rejection, you're cold, you're withdrawn, you're, you're going to reject me. So I'm not going to make myself vulnerable. And you actually are rejecting people. So you basically just need to embody like people are going to like me and that will sort of become true because you'll be putting out all the things that we like about other people. You'll be putting those vibes out. Exactly. Yeah. I think when it comes to friends, one of our biggest liabilities is we think a lot more about how people are treating us than how we treat people. Why is nobody reaching out to me? Why did nobody try to overcome my walls to be my friend? We're not asking ourselves at the same rate. Have I reached out to people? Have I made people feel loved and accepted? Have I made people feel like they belong? It's like we can sometimes expect things of us that we're not holding ourselves to. And I think Platonic, my book, is like, let's hold ourselves accountable, too, because when we do, we're empowered to actually have a change in our social relationships. It's time to get dressed up, D.C., So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So the secret to friendship is basically more or less fake it until you make it. 
Kind of. But the thing about, I guess, faking it is that it's sort of like affirmations in a way, right? Like affirmations, they can change your neural structure, like how your brain is wired after a while. Like if you keep telling yourself people are going to accept me, eventually it's going to be part of what your brain assumes going into interactions, right? So the line between faking it to making it becomes sort of blurred. And that's when the sweet spot happens. That's when things really start to change. Oh, you're speaking my language. I'm big into the like affirmations and sort of that you can sort of create your reality a little bit by, you know, telling yourself what you want to be true. You know, I used to wake up in the morning and be like, oh, today's going to be a terrible day. And now I wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to we're going to have the best day ever. And it sounds so dopey, but it does actually make a difference, I think. It does, because what's happening in our social worlds especially is just so ambiguous, right? Like, we don't know why that person didn't hold the door for us or why our friend took long to respond to our text message or why that person interrupted us in class, right? So if our template and our idea is people are just rejecting me versus our template or idea is people like me, we're fundamentally going to see perceive the same behaviors very differently, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it's, a lot of it is like not dwelling on these like negative fantasies that we might have about what's going on with other people. Are there other strategies that you'd recommend for folks who are looking to make friends as adults? Like, are there groups people should be checking out or spaces we should be frequenting if we're looking for more friendships? Yes. So if I was your friendship coach and you were like, I moved to D.C. and I have no friends, where should I start? Right. Here's what I would tell you. There's this sociologist, Rebecca Adams, and she says, for friendships to happen organically, we need continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Meaning I have to see you repeatedly over time and we didn't plan it and we have to start being a little bit vulnerable, which we get at recess and gym and lunch class when we're kids, but as adults, we actually don't have. So we really need to take the initiative. So first thing I would suggest is, Find a way to create that infrastructure in your life where you have that continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. And that looks like doing a hobby or interest in community. Do you like writing? Join a writing group. You like books? Join a book club. You like hiking? Join a hiking group. You like languages? Join a language group, right? And what that does is when it's repeated over time, you capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect. So when researchers planted women into psychology classes for varying numbers of classes, at the end of the semester, none of the students recognized the woman, but they liked the woman who showed up to the most classes 20% more than the woman that didn't show up to any. And that just shows our unconscious tendency to like people the more they're familiar. So when you show up to this group, it's going to be awkward at first. You're going to be weary. You're going to be uncomfortable. That's natural, right? Our brains, whatever is unfamiliar to us, we are uncomfortable with. Over time, you can expect that it's going to get more easy and more comfortable. Then you want to assume people like you, like I said earlier, and shoot your shot with someone in the group that you like. And that just looks like saying oh, it's been so nice to talk to you. I'd love to connect sometime outside of this if you'd be open to it, right? Remembering the liking gap, remembering that people are less likely to reject us than we think they are. Meeting up outside of that group starts really creating the buds of friendship that can continue with the infrastructure that you already have to see each other. That's really useful. But I guess the flip side of that is that one of the realities of being in a city like D.C. is that it can be kind of a transient city. People live here, they move here for a program or a fellowship or an administration, and they move away. How is that an obstacle that you see playing out and that presents a challenge to this like consistency that you're saying we our brains need to really form those strong bonds of friendship? 
Absolutely, Bridget. I relate to this. I have like six friends moving in the next year and I am grieving, but I'm like, luckily I know how to make friends. I wrote this book. <laughs> luckily I'm the expert. Yeah, luckily for me. Funny. Um, so yeah, so I think because people tend to move out of the city a lot, you're going to have to do this process in a way that's repeated over time, in a way that people that are in smaller towns or people move less will not have to do, right? But once you start putting yourself out there, you're going to start realizing that like people are really just less likely to reject you than you think they are. And here's the other thing. How do you be likable towards others? According to the research of the theory of inferred attraction, people like people they think like them. So if you want to be likable towards people, just like show that you like them. I mean, and even in initiating, inviting someone out to hang out, you're doing well. You're showing someone that you like them. You're showing someone that you're interested in them. And that tends to make them like you more, not less, right? It's not creepy, weird, and clingy. It's actually people are like, oh, I appreciate this. I've been wanting to make friends. So so it's our predictions of the social world are just so off. And I just want to convey that to people because they, like, I just want to ask you, like, what, what friendships would you go for if you weren't afraid you get rejected? And I just want to tell people, like, go for them. Wow. I mean, that's such a powerful way to put it, like if you weren't being held back by fear or like a negative self-fulfilling prophecy that people are going to think that you're a weirdo or a creeper, what would your relationships look like? What would your friendships look like? How would you be different? How would your life be different? Like, that's a pretty empowering statement. It really is. And you know what? It's funny because assuming people like you, right? We think that's about how other people perceive us, but there's this interesting theory called the sociometric theory of self-esteem, which argues that our self-esteem is a reflection of our gauge for how people perceive us. It's not actually how we feel about ourselves. It's how we think people feel about us. So if we assume people like us, it's not only going to make us more likely to engage with them, it's actually going to give us higher self-esteem. So if people actually don't end up liking us and we've done all this work to assume people like us and raise our (laughs) self-esteem, it's actually going to impact us less than it otherwise would. Because I think people are afraid of being too optimistic because they're like, oh, then I'm really going to get let down. But in fact, if you're cynical all the time, that's a lot more painful than being let down in a moment. Definitely. That's that's such good advice. I guess one of the other questions I have, given that you wrote this book in D.C., you live in the area, how do you think D.C. fares when it comes to friendship? One of the stereotypes of people in D.C., I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but it is a stereotype that we love talking about our jobs. The first time we meet somebody, it's like, oh, what do you do? (laughs) Given this focus on like career and professionalism, how do you think D.C. fares in the friendship department? Well, here's the the double-edged sword, Bridget, right? You mentioned that D.C. is a transient city, which makes it hard in some ways. But it also makes it easier because people in times of transition are particularly open to friendship. So you have all these people moving into the city who are just a lot more open to friendship than people that have been staying in the same place. Also, we tend to see, you know, when people find their spouse and they start having kids, they tend to focus on their friendships less. They tend to lose friends according to the research. I think in DC, we have a lot more diversity in the life paths that people take. So, you know, you have a lot more people that are sort of just single, maybe don't want kids, aren't in this traditional relationship. And that leads them with more time for friendship too, right? Single people have more intimate friendships and they spend more time with their friends. So I would say that even though DC, like, Definitely has its quirks. Like, yeah, we probably need to stop talking about our jobs all the time. <laughs> I think it also has its its own rewards. I love that. I mean, I guess, like, why did you decide to write this book? Like, why friendship? Why is it something that you're so interested in? 
Yeah. So I would say in my young 20s, I I was under the spell of romantic love. I felt like I was only worthy with the romantic partner. And if I was going through a breakup, it made me unlovable, right? And I just took it so hard. So I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where to kind of heal, we practice wellness together. Let's meditate, let's cook, let's do yoga. And it really turned my individual friends into an entire group. We had continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. But yeah, we became a group and the most healing thing of all was regular connection and community, right? It was more healing than any of the wellness strategies we were practicing. And it made me question, why did I think I wasn't loved? This love has always been around me, right? Like, why doesn't this love matter? Why doesn't this love count? And I was like, I don't think this is just a me problem. I think this is a society problem. So I just uh, started to read a lot about friendship and get really interested in it and figure out like, who's talking about this problem? I think it's really hurting us. And we're like really lonely and our divorce rate is like very high. (laughs) And it just doesn't make any sense. And so that's where I just got really interested and wanted to write my own book on friends. I mean, the work that you do is fascinating, but it's also critical. My parents were a different generation, and they were the folks who were like, it's about your nuclear family, your partner and your kids in your house, and that's what's important. So they didn't really have a lot of friends. And I think now when we talk about this, the real deep threats of loneliness, how people are really suffering. What would you say to someone who's like, who cares? Friends don't matter. Focus on your partner. Focus on your kids. Focus on your professional success. Who cares if you have friends? What would you say to that? So Bridget, remember how I said we tend to be really bad at predicting things because of our negativity bias? That's true when it comes to connection. We tend to predict that we won't enjoy connection as much as we actually do. And what I would say is that you will only know the value and the beauty and the depth and the intimacy that friendship brings to your life once you find those friends. And before you have that, you fundamentally cannot predict just what type of value that it will provide in your life. And so I will say, if you go out there and you make the effort to make those new friends and you still think friendship sucks, then you can tell me to eat my words, but if you haven't actually tried, then you can't actually know. I love it. Thank you so much for reaching out to us and for writing this book. And thanks for chatting with us today. The book is platonic. I feel like I learned so much about the value of friendships from this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and we can't let you go without your quick news roundup. There's an ongoing battle in Tacoma Park over some kids sidewalk art. The city says the street art counts as graffiti because it's been made using latex paint, and a bunch of residents are fighting for the murals to be preserved through an exemption. The colorful murals are of native plants and outline a children's obstacle course. We'll link to more information on this story in our show notes in case you want to get involved. Meanwhile, D.C.'s teachers have their work cut out for them this year. The district released data from citywide standardized tests that students took last spring, and the results are not so good. Math proficiency fell across all grades, and reading levels are at their lowest in five years. Now, officials say that this was kind of expected after two pandemic years, and that D.C. is amping up tutoring and summer schooling to bring those grades up. And lastly, California Tortilla closed its Cleveland Park location at the end of August, a rare fast casual loss in a city where restaurants like that usually are able to thrive. We're putting together an episode all about why the fast casual is so popular in D.C., and we want to include your thoughts. 
leave us a voicemail at 202-642-2654 and let us know about your favorite fast casual spot in D.C. and which ones you think are a little overrated. And you might have your shot at local podcast name. And that is our show. If you're enjoying CityCast DC, both the podcast and newsletter, go tell your Zumba instructor, your mailman, the guy who sells you your mumbo sauce, and that sweet old lady next door. And maybe even stick around and show her how to subscribe. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Bye. Bye.